Please take your Bibles, if you have one with you, and turn to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. We're not back in Isaiah, not yet, because three words have been rolling around the staff's collective mind for about six months. Worship, connect, serve. Now, if we were to summarize our mission statement, which is glorify God, make disciples by exalting, encouraging, equipping, and engaging, if we were to make it even simpler, we might land here, worship, connect, serve, because that's how we glorify God, and that's what disciples do. Disciples might do more than that, but they don't do less than that, still be a disciple. If you're part of Forest Gate, what should you do? You should worship. You should connect with the body of Christ relationally, and you should also serve the body of Christ. Well, this week, we're going to start by talking about how to worship, how to worship deeper. Looking at Romans 11, 33 to 36, as well as some other passages. You might want to keep a finger in the Psalms. That, that might be a good idea. Without further ado, Romans 11, 33 to 36. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Since the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. Father, would you do your good work in us through your word, through your spirit? We ask this now that you might speak to us because your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to crave God more. I want you to want more of God. That's one desire that can't be too strong, one desire that won't leave you disappointed because there is always more depth to discover. Notice verse 33 of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There's, there's depth. There's deep riches here in God. There's deep knowledge because he's all-knowing. There's also deep wisdom, wisdom, knowing how to use that knowledge, that skill in living, you might say. If you want to live more skillfully, that wouldn't it help to get to know the true and living God, the God of unsearchable knowledge and wisdom? Now, before we dig into that more, two things. One, this is a topical sermon. Normally, I pick one passage. We go verse by verse, not today, not for the next two Sundays. Secondly, a question, is this a practical sermon? I strive to make all my sermons practical, but John Calvin said nearly 500 years ago in the introduction to his magnum opus, true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. There is nothing more practical than knowing God. Of course, there are a thousand things that can distract us from this weariness, culture of immediate gratification, quick fixes, constant change. You know, it's common to say, I just want teaching that meets my needs. I just want to be fed. It's not as common to ask, 
What am I truly hungry for? What is every human truly hungry for? Because I think what you want, I think what everyone wants is a God who is larger than life, greater than self, and lasting forever. I think you want to know him. And to know him more, you have to worship him. You have to worship him deeper. How do we worship deeper? Five points this morning. Recognition, preparation, participation, rumination, and anticipation. The first one, recognition. Recognize his worth. We see that in the Romans passage that we read here. And you might not notice it yet, but these five points are a progression. Before you even prepare, that's our second point, before you even prepare for worship, you have to first recognize why you should worship him. You should worship him because he's worth more than anything else. Verse 36, Romans 11, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Everything comes from him and through him is Alan Hemphill's reminding us in adult Sunday school as we study creation. Even though some of God's image bearers might deny it, everything is from him and through him. Everything is also to him. When it's properly understood, it should result in praise, glory, honor to God. It should result, <clears throat> excuse me, in a recognition of his worth. His worth. That's where we get the word worship. It is worthship, ascribing worth to the supremely glorious and sovereign God. Now, a word about Romans. We're in Romans 11, these few verses here. Romans 1 through 11 is the longest doctrinal exposition of the gospel. Romans 1 through 11 is answering the question, what is the gospel? Why is it necessary? Now, in some ways, it's answered briefly in Romans 1, 16 through 18. Some of these are very familiar. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then verse 18 is a new section, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In some ways, that's a pretty good summary of it just right there. In other ways, Paul spends 11 chapters laying it all out, all of it, guilt and grace, sin and wrath, justification by faith, peace with God and adoption, living more and more under righteousness despite the remaining sin inside us, the soaring heights of Romans 8. You might remember we explored those two years ago and how nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, as well as the mysteries of Romans 9 through 11, how the Gentiles and Jews fit together in the grand tapestry of God's plan. And once Paul gets done with all that, you'd forgive him if he was done, if he needed a breath. But no, there's one more breathtaking passage, the one we read, Romans eleven thirty-three 33 to 36. And Paul is not saying in those verses, keep in mind, that God is unknowable, far, far from it. Paul is saying that God is infinite. As someone once said, I can see the depths, but I cannot see the bottom. In other words, God can be known. It's just that his ways are ultimately higher than our ways. There are some things we will not know, but many things we can know.
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says to us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. We live in a cynical age that wants to see through everything, doesn't want to believe in anything too strongly because frankly, we're afraid to get burned, get disappointed. And here is a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he chooses to reveal himself to us in terms that we can understand. The things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. If you want to know ultimate reality, if you want to know the meaning of life, your purpose, your destiny, where this world is headed, then it's all right here. It's been revealed. The God of infinite worth, infinite wisdom has revealed it to you. Yes, again, there are mysteries that you won't unravel in this life. But the most important mysteries have been revealed to us in God's word. And what is that worth? Knowledge of the God who is deep, who is infinite in his riches and wisdom. This one song says, it demands my soul, my life, my all. And that's essentially, by the way, what Paul says next. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What's that mean? Well, at the very least, it means you should worship God in light of his mercy to you. And you should also prepare to worship God. That's our next point. After recognition comes preparation, preparing for worship. We're going to talk about Psalms 120 to 134 for a minute. I'm not going to read all 15 Psalms that are mentioned in your sermon outline there. Instead, Bible trivia question for you this morning to challenge all of us. Beginners who've never picked up a Bible, seasoned veterans alike, what do you, what do Psalms 120 to 134, what do they have in common? What are they called? You know, if you flipped there, you would see at the opening words of each Psalm, the Psalms of ascent, the Psalms of the going up, because tradition says that God's Old Testament people, they sang or recited these on their three annual journeys to Jerusalem, their three big worship feasts and festivals. And as they got closer to Jerusalem, they went uphill and their hearts were lifted up to God as well. As they traveled to worship for days at a time, they prepared to worship. They, for example, asked for deliverance from their enemies in Psalm 120. They reminded themselves that their ultimate help and protection came not from the mighty mountains around them, but from the Lord, Psalm 121. They said in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And then they ended by calling everyone to worship God in Psalm 134. You know, we often have a song or hymn of preparation, a song that's particularly preparing us to hear God's word, the way Dale explained it earlier, like today, where else can we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. And while it's a very good practice to have a song, a hymn of preparation, you don't have to wait until Sunday 
to prepare your heart to worship. You can prepare before you ever walk in this door. Now, will God love you more if you read through the electronic bulletin on Friday when the weekly announcement email comes out? No, he won't. Your obedience, your devotion does not earn you more of God's love. Hopefully we, we know that his grace is freely given. But what if that's not your goal? What if you know his love is not earned? What if you already know about the love that will not let you go? What if that's not your goal? What if your goal is to crave God more? What if your goal is to have more of God, to know him more, to gain Christ and be found in him, to know him and the power of his resurrection, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? If you want to know him more, then why wouldn't you prepare to worship before you ever get to the worship service? And how should that preparation work? How should it look? Well, <clears throat> most weeks you can probably guess what the next passage in a series is going to be. Even if you can't, even if we throw you an oddball kind of like this morning, you'll know on Friday when the bulletin is posted online, via email, all those things. So I encourage you at minimum, read the passage, make notes, mental, otherwise, of what you don't understand, have questions about. If I don't answer them in the sermon, you can always ask me afterwards. You want to do more than that? Read through the whole order of worship. Read the hymn lyrics. We construct the service to be thematically unified as much as possible. If you want to know God, and if you want to get more out of worship, then start by preparing for worship. And when you get here, participate in worship. That's our next point. Thirdly, participation. Participate in worship. Psalm 136. I told you we'd be in a lot of different psalms. I have more sticky notes, more verses to read than normal this morning. But nonetheless, Psalm 136 verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And the next verse also ends, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so does the next for 26 verses. It probably indicates that the congregation participated in the gathered worship in the Old Testament. If you want more out of worship, then participate. Listen to the call to worship. Listen to the prayers. Confess your sins silently. Hear God's assurance of pardon and forgiveness. Make a joyful noise when the songs are sung, no matter what age you are. Respond when there's a responsive reading and participate actively in the sermon. Now, you might wonder that last one. How do I participate actively? Aren't I supposed to listen? How do I participate in the sermon? I'll give you a few examples. Number one, Mildred McNair was a head nodder. You don't know Mildred, that's okay. Elder's wife in Clinton, Mississippi, great lady. Whenever I made a good point in a sermon, point she agreed with, I'd see Mildred do this. You think I don't notice. The, the feedback is important, verbal or otherwise. She was a head nodder. Next example of how to participate during the sermon. Pay attention and don't be afraid to give feedback. Mildred's husband, Steve, wasn't a head nodder. He's one of the elders, great man. But when he concentrated during the sermon, he had this strange look on his face. I was worried at first. I was like, is he, does he not agree? Is he mad about something? No, it wasn't it. It was just his concentrating face. Reason I say that because after every sermon I ever preached, Steve would come up 
and he would give me a specific compliment. I like the way you emphasize what the narrator left out. I'm glad you told us not to neglect this habit. Every time something slightly different. Now, let's be clear. I am not saying this because I'm fishing for more compliments about my preaching. I'll take them. <laughs> I'm not going to turn them away. Satan gives most pastors enough discouragement, so we're always grateful for compliments. But the reason I'm telling you about Steve is because he had to pay attention closely to do what he did. You know what I mean? Pay attention. Now, on that note, number three, say amen in whatever language is most comfortable to you. Say amen in whatever language is most comfortable to you. I like to have fun with you all about this one. Sometimes ask for amens unsuccessfully many times. Maybe you love doing that. And maybe, maybe you're afraid to be the only guy or girl that does that. All I'll say is this. It is okay to close your eyes. It is okay to raise your hands during songs. It's okay to say amen during a sermon. I'm not saying everybody's going to join you. I'm saying it's okay. I'm saying we won't stop you. Which reminds me, by the way, of a, it's either a t-shirt or a coffee mug that I once saw. Maybe it's both. It says this, Presbyterians say amen by taking notes. <laughs> Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> on that note, number four, take notes. Take notes. Now again, Jesus won't love you more if you take notes. But you may learn more. There are exceptions to all of these. Of course, I'm giving you different ideas, different ideas of how you might participate in worship, uh, taking notes, exceptions. Maybe you have young kids. Maybe your wife relishes the opportunity to hold your hand and listen to the sermon in peace while your kids are in nursery or children's church. If that's what your wife wants, you have my permission not to take notes. But find a way to participate during the service, during the sermon. Find a way to pay attention meaningfully. Because here's the thing. Sometimes the preacher misses. And even if he doesn't miss by a lot, I am certain that I've never preached a perfect sermon. And even when I preach a, a good one, I wish I could have done or said that one thing just a little better. But what do you do when you hear an A minus or a B plus or a C minus sermon? Psalm to think about. Psalm 119 verses 96 and 97 says this. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. If you know that God's command is not just for your good, but that it's also exceedingly broad, then you will want to learn as much as you can about it. And you will want to do that even when you're hearing an imperfect sermon, which, by the way, is every sermon you will ever hear. If you approach every sermon by saying, God, let him preach the best sermon he can, and by saying, God, let me learn as much as I can from your exceedingly broad commands, then you will get a whole lot more out of worship. Even if the sermon is not ideal, even if, for those of you who were here on Christmas Eve, even if the wrapping paper is substandard, do you want to get more out of worship? Do you want to get more out of 
God, from God, then participate in worship. And then ruminate. That's our fourth point, ruminate. Rumination. Ruminate upon Sunday's worship. We'll talk about Psalm 1 in a minute. First, ruminate. Kids, what animal ruminates? If you said cow, then tell your parents you deserve some chocolate when you get home. Parents, it is Sunday. It's a day of celebration. Kids, you can thank me later. Other correct answers, by the way, include goats, sheep, giraffes, gazelles, antelopes. But ruminating, it's kind of gross, actually. But you'll probably remember this. Ruminating is kind of how cows and other animals digest their food. They chew it. They swallow it. And then it, well, it, it, it comes back up. And they chew it some more. And why do cows do that? I'm not encouraging you to do that. I hope that went without saying. But they do that so they can digest their food better. They chew it longer so they can get every last nutrient out of it. And what's that have to do with Sunday worship? Well, Hebrews compares the truth of God's word to food. And I want you to treat God's word like it's something to be savored, not fast food. I'm challenging you not to just eat and run, but to chew it over and over, to ponder it, to think about it, to repeat it until you discover new things and questions and things you want to learn. It's what Psalm 1 encourages Christians to do, to meditate upon the word of God. Psalm 1, I'll read verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditating. Actively repeating the words of Scripture. Aloud if you can, silently if you can't. Until the truth is absorbed into your bloodstream. I challenge you to spend at least as much time thinking about the Bible as you do thinking about the Broncos coaching search or Bama's next quarterback or whatever your non-sports hobby is. At least as much time as you spend thinking about those grayish kitchen shelves in Joanna Gaines's magazine. At least as much time as you spend thinking about your favorite Christmas present or that piece of chocolate that your parents might give you later. Do you want to get more out of worship? Then ruminate upon God's word. Meditate upon it. If you prepare for worship and participate in worship, points, let's see, two and three. If you do points two and three, then you're going to have plenty to ruminate upon. And I hope that as you ruminate upon Sunday's truth again and again, then you'll naturally do the following. Number five, anticipation. Anticipate the next holy day. Psalm 84. What holy days am I talking about? Well, Sunday. Sundays are a holy Sabbath to the Lord. They're days worth celebrating. And when we have an opportunity to be in God's house on God's day with God's people, singing, reading, praying God's praises, then that's a good day. When you remember that the triune God who had everything he needed created you for fellowship with him, then how can you not celebrate? When you remember that he pursued you even after you rebelled and ran from him, then how can you not celebrate? When you begin to remember all that, don't you just 
Don't you begin to understand the Psalms a little bit more? Psalms like 122 verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Psalm 84, which we've read as part of our call to worship and elsewhere in the service. Psalm 84, 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Or verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Why am I emphasizing this today? Why, why this message? Am I worried that the church, either locally or worldwide, is in trouble and I need to rally the troops? No. I had an older pastor in town tell me twice this past year, he thinks our church is one of the best places it's been. I hope he's right. I think he is. I think we're in a good place. Even some who are struggling with various problems, I, I, I know that most of you are struggling with them, not hiding from them. Not worried. I am a worrier. I'm not worried about the church, not about this church. And even if I was, God has reminded me that he loves his church even more than I do. It's a rebuke to me in a sense, but also a comfort. So why am I beating this drum this morning? Why am I exhorting you to worship deeper? Because I think we're all searching and I think we've all been burned. What do I mean? We've all been disappointed by something we hoped in in the past few years. Maybe it was a person, maybe an institution, maybe a leader or a friend, a family member or humanity in general. We're all a little scared to hope again. I like to call it hopophobia. It's just easier if I keep my expectations low. It's easier to not commit to anything. You can't get disappointed if you never hope in anything, right? That doesn't work, does it? It's almost like hope is sort of hardwired into the human psyche. You can try to not hope in anything, but it just doesn't work. So you start searching all over again for a, a sports team, a charismatic leader, a politician, a new church, a new gym, a new job, a new something. And what we forget is that we aren't the first ones to search for meaning, for happiness, for hope. Oh, whether it's you too singing, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Whether it's the Rolling Stones who couldn't get no satisfaction. Yes, I know what that song is about. We forget that this restlessness is not new to us. No, you see, there was a man way back, a worldly man of the fourth and fifth centuries. He sampled every pleasure, every forbidden fruit there was. And only after he found peace with God could he see his restlessness with 2020 hindsight and say, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Worship deeper, my friends, because it's the only way to find the deep rest that you're seeking. Worship deeper because you'll never get to the bottom of God's grace, the bottom of his riches of knowledge and wisdom. Worship deeper. That's what I want for you. I want you to crave God more because no one is worth more and no one is more satisfying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. 
Hast thou not seen how all thy desires e'er have been granted in what he ordaineth? We sang those words a few moments ago. Father, we pray that they might sink in. We pray that we might see that you are what we ultimately want. You are where the joy and hope and satisfaction and acceptance and all of those things can be found. Father, help us to stop searching. Stop searching in the wrong places. Help us to find in you all that we long for, all that we desire. Help us to know that you will never disappoint those who seek you. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.